He looked down at his hands, and he'd made a club. A weapon for what? Why did it make him feel better? But he had to stay alive. Yes, if he died, then the nation would never have been. The island would be left to the red crabs and the grandfather birds. There would be no one to say that anyone had been there. There was a fluttering overhead. A grandfather bird had landed in a shaggy-headed grass tree. Mao knew that, even though he couldn't see up through the tangle of vines. Grandfather birds were very clumsy and didn't so much land as crash slowly. It hopped around up there, making the nab-nab grumbling noises, and then there was the familiar sound of throwing up and a shower of small bones pattered around the forest floor. The tree shook as the grandfather bird took off again. It flapped out into the open, saw Mao, decided to watch him for signs of being dead, and landed heavily on a branch of a tree that could barely be seen under its weight of strangler vines. For a moment, boy and bird stared at each other. The branch snapped. The grandfather bird squawked and leapt away before the rotted wood hit the ground and disappeared, flapping and squawking with injured pride into the undergrowth. Mao paid it no attention. He was staring at the cloud of fine yellow dust rising from the fallen branch. It was punk dust. What you got when rot and termites and thyme hollowed out a dead branch. And this one had been up in the air, out of reach of the damp. The dust was like pollen. It would be the best ever for starting fires. He took the biggest lump of branch that he could hold, stuffed both ends with leaves, and started back down the mountain. There were pigs rooting in the fields again now, but he had no time to shoo them away. One piece of paper vine soon breaks, he thought, and five bound together are strong. That's good to know, and it is true. The trouble is, I'm the one piece. He stopped. He was taking the other, steeper track down to the vil to the place where the village had been. The wave had surged across the island here, too. Trees were broken, and everything stank of seaweed but on the other side of the shattered trees was a cliff that overlooked the low forest. Mao carefully tucked the tubers and the punk branch under some grass and pushed his way through the tangle of vines and branches at the edge of the cliff. It was possible to climb all the way up or down the cliff quite easily. He'd done it before. There were so many roots and vines and creepers growing over the stone, and so much soil and old bird's nests had made a home for every drifting seed that it was more like a vertical meadow with flowers everywhere. There was paper vine, too. There was always paper vine. He cut enough to make a sling for his club, while whispering belated thank-yous to the paper vine woman for her ever-reliable hair. Now he slid to the edge and pushed aside a spray of orchids. Mists were rising everywhere below him, but he could see the track the monster had left through the forest, a white scar half a mile long. It stopped at the group of fig trees that grew in the highest part of the low forest. They were massive. Mao knew them well. Their trunks had huge buttresses that looked as though they might reach down to the roots of the world. They would stop anything. But the steam and the spread of the tree canopy meant that he couldn't see what it was that had been stopped. But he heard a voice. It was very faint, but it was coming from somewhere below Mao. It sounded a bit like singing, but not a very big bit. To Mao, it just sounded like, na, 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 na. But it was a human voice. Perhaps it was another trouser man. It was a bit squeaky. Were there trouser women? Or it could be a ghost. There would be a lot of ghosts now. It was past noon. If it was a ghost, then it would be very weak. Mao was the nation. He had to do something. He started to climb down the cliff, 
which was easy enough, even with trying to move quietly, although birds flew up all around him. He shivered. He didn't know how to make a ghost bag. That was a woman's task. The a bit like singing went on. Perhaps it was some sort of ghost, then. The birds had made such a racket that any living person would surely have stopped and investigated. His feet touched the tangle of flaking stone and tree roots that was the floor of the lower forest, and he moved silently between the dripping trees. Na, 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 clink, na, 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 clink. That sounded like metal. Mao grasped his club in both hands. Give for wild confusion peace, clink. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee, clink. For those in peril on the sea, clank, drat. Mao peered around the buttress of a giant fig tree. There was a lot to see. Something had been wrecked, but it was not alive. It was some kind of giant canoe, stuck between the trunks of two trees, and covered with debris that looked as though it would be worth investigating, but not now. A big hole in the side leaked stones. But all this was background. Much closer to Mao, and staring at him in horror, was a girl. Probably. But she could be a ghost. She was very pale. And a trouserman, too. The trousers were white and frilly, like the feathery legs of a grandfather bird. But she also had some kind of skirt tucked up around her waist, and her hair glowed in the sunlight. She had been crying. She had also been trying to dig into the forest floor with some odd kind of flat-headed spear that had the glint of metal about it. That was stupid. It was all roots and rocks, and there was a very small heap of rocks next to her. There was something else, too, large and wrapped up. Perhaps I did walk in the footsteps of Lokaha, Mao thought, because I know that there is a dead man in there. And the ghost girl, she was in my nightmares. I'm not alone. The girl dropped the flat-headed spear and quickly held up something else, something that also shone like metal. I, I know how to use this, she shouted very loudly. One step more and I will pull the trigger. I mean it. The metal thing waved back and forth in her hands. Don't think I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. I could have killed you before. Just because I felt sorry for you doesn't mean you can come down here. My father will be here soon. She sounded excited. Mao took the view that she wanted him to have the metal thing, because by the way she was holding it with both hands and waving it about, she was obviously very frightened of it. He reached out for it. She screamed and turned her head away. Something went click. There was a small fountain of sparks from near one end of the metal thing, and quite slowly a little round ball rolled out of a hole in the other end and landed in the mud in front of the girl. There were things on her feet, he noticed with a sort of horrified fascination. They were like black pods and had no toes. The girl was watching him in round-eyed terror. Mao gently took the thing away from her, and she flattened herself against the side of the canoe as if he were the ghost. The metal stank of something bitter and foul, but that wasn't the important thing. It had sparked. Mao knew what to do with a spark. "'Thank you for this gift of fire,' he said, and picked up his axe and ran for it before she could do anything dreadful to him. In the wreckage on the beach, Mao crouched over his work. The punk branch was only the start. He had combed the forest for dry twigs and bark. There was always some, even after heavy rain, and he'd carefully made little piles of everything from grass to quite thick twigs. He'd made a small heap of crumbled, dried-up paper-vine bark and punk, and now, with great care, he picked up the spark-maker. 
If you pulled back the piece of metal at the top until it went click, and then pulled the piece of metal at the bottom, and made certain, at least a second time, to keep your fingers out of the way, then a sort of metal claw scraped a dark stone down some metal, and sparks would be born. He tried it again, holding the spark maker just above the punk heap, and held his breath as a few sparks dropped onto fine dust, which went black where they fell. Mao blew across the heap, which he shielded in his cupped hands, and a tiny wisp of smoke went up. He kept his breath steady, and a little flame crackled into life. This was the hard part. He fed the flame with great care, teasing it along with grass and bark until it grew fat enough for its first twig. Every move was thoughtful, because fire is so easily scared away. It wasn't until it was crackling and hissing and spitting that he tried the first thin branch. There was a nasty moment when the flames seemed to choke on it, and then they came up stronger, and before long were asking for more. Well, there was no shortage of fuel. Broken trees were everywhere. They dragged them into the flames, and they burst as the heat boiled the water in them. Mao threw more wood on, piling it up so that sparks and steam soared into the dark. Shadows jumped and danced across the beach, and while the flames burned, there was a sort of life. After a while he dug out a hole on the edge of the fire, buried the mad root tubers just under the sand, and scraped glowing embers over them. Then he lay back. When was the last time he had sat by a fire here at home? The memory rushed in before he could stop it. It was his last meal as a boy, with all his family there, and in the nation all his family meant, sooner or later, just about everyone. It was his last meal, because the next time he ate on the island it would be as a man, no longer living in the boy's hut, but sleeping in the house of the unmarried men. He hadn't eaten much because he'd been too excited. He'd been too scared, too, because he could just about get the idea that this wasn't only about him, it was also about his family. If he came back, ready for a man's tattoos, and obviously the thing with the knife where you must not scream, then it would be a triumph for them, too. It would mean that he had been brought up in the right way and had learned the right things. The fire crackled and sent smoke and steam up into the darkness, and he saw his family in the firelight, watching him, smiling at him. He closed his eyes and tried to force the clamouring memories away into the dark. Had he sent any of them into the dark current when he'd walked in the steps of Lokaha? Perhaps. But there was no memory there. He'd been curled up in the grey body of the Lokaha Mao, as a part of him trudged back and forth, doing what was needed, taking the dead to become dolphins so that they wouldn't become food for the pigs. He should have sung a burial chant, but he'd never been taught the words, so instead he'd straightened limbs on the bodies as tidily as he could. Perhaps he had seen faces, but then that part of him had died. He tried to remember the face of his mother, but all he could see was dark water. He could hear her voice, though, singing the song about the god of fire, and how the paper vine woman got fed up with him chasing her daughters and bound his hands to his sides with great coils of vine. And Mao's younger sister used to laugh at that and chase him with coils of... But a wave passed over his mind, and he was glad it washed the bright memory away. He could feel the hole inside, blacker and deeper than the dark current. Everything was missing. Nothing was where it should be. He was here, on this lonely shore, and all he could think of was the silly questions that children ask. Why do things end? How do they start? 
Why do good people die? What do the gods do? And this was hard, because one of the right things for a man was, don't ask silly questions. And now the little blue hermit crab was out of its shell and scuttling across the sand, looking for a new shell, and there wasn't one. Barren sand stretched away on every side, and all it could do was run. He opened his eyes, and now there was just him and the ghost girl. Had she been real? Was he real? Was that a silly question? The smell of the tubers came up through the sand. His stomach suggested that they might be real, at least, and he burned his fingers digging them up. One would keep until tomorrow. The other one he broke open and stuck his face into the fluffy, crunchy, hot, savoury heart of, and he went to sleep with his mouth full while the shadows danced in circles around the fire. Chapter 3 Calenshire In the darkness of the wreck of the sweet Judy, a match flared. There were some pings and scraping noises, and at last the lamp was alight. It wasn't broken but she had to be sparing with it because she hadn't found any more oil yet. It was probably underneath everything else. Everything was under everything else. It was a mercy she'd wrapped the mattress around her before the sweet Judy tried to sail through trees. She'd remember the snapping and the screams as long as she lived. She'd heard the hull split and the masts crack, and worst of all, she had heard the silence and she'd climbed out into a steaming morning full of birdsong, with most of the Judy back on the smashed trail behind her and one word in her head. The word was Calenshire. It meant a special kind of madness brought on by the heat. First mate Cox had told her about it, probably hoping to frighten her because he was that sort of person. Sailors got Calenshire when they'd been becalmed at sea for too long. They'd look over the side and see... Instead of the ocean, cool green fields. They'd leap down into them and drown. First mate Cox said he'd seen grown men do it. They'd jumped into a meadow full of daisies and drowned. Or, as he put it, drowned And he'd probably pushed them in, too. And there she was, stepping off a boat into the middle of a green jungle. It was like the opposite of madness, in a way. She was quite sane, she was sure of that, but the world itself had gone mad. There were dead men back on the track. She'd seen dead people before when her uncle had broken his neck while hunting, and of course there had been that terrible accident with the harvesting machine. Neither of the dead seamen was Cookie, she was shamefully glad to say, and she'd said a quick prayer over them and had run back to the ship to be sick. Now she rummaged in the mess that had been a neat cabin and found her writing box. She balanced it on her knees and opened it, taking out one of the gold-edged invitation cards she had gotten for her birthday, and stared at it for a moment. According to her book of etiquette, another birthday present, there should be a chaperone present if she invited the young man to visit, and the only person she could think of was poor Captain Roberts. He was a real captain, which counted for something, but he was unfortunately dead. On the other hand, the book didn't actually say the chaperone had to be alive, only present. Anyway, she still had the sharp machete stuffed down behind her bunk. It had not been a happy voyage after first mate Cox had come aboard. She glanced at the blanket-covered shape in the corner, from which came a continual muttering. She had to keep it covered up, or else it would start to swear again. Some of the words it came out with a respectable young lady should not know the meaning of. The words she didn't know the meaning of worried her even more. 
She had been unkind to the boy, she knew. You weren't supposed to shoot people, especially if you hadn't even been introduced to them, and it was only a mercy the gunpowder had got wet. It was sheer panic, and he'd been working so hard burying those poor people in the sea. At least her father was alive, and he would come looking for her, even though there were more than eight hundred places to look in the mothering Sunday islands. She dipped her pen in the ink and crossed out Government House, Port Mercia, at the top of the card, and carefully wrote underneath The Wreck of the Sweet Judy. There were other changes that needed to be made. Whoever had designed the cards had completely overlooked the possibility that you might want to invite someone whose name you didn't know, who lived on a beach, wore hardly any clothing, and almost certainly couldn't read. But she did her best, on both sides of the card. Where it said dress, she'd written, yes, please and then signed it, Ermintrude Fanshaw, brackets on, the Honourable Miss, brackets off, and wished she didn't have to, at least about the Ermintrude. Then she put on the big oilskin coat that had belonged to poor Captain Roberts, pocketed the last of the mangoes, picked up a cutlass, unhooked the oil lamp, and set out into the night. Mao awoke with the grandfathers shouting in his head and the fire a big glowing heap. Replace the god anchors! Who is guarding the nation? Where is our beer? I don't know, Mao thought, looking up at the sky. The women made beer. I don't know how. He couldn't go into the women's place, could he? He'd already been up there to take a look, although men couldn't go to the women's place, and women couldn't go into the Valley of the Grandfathers. If these things happened, there would be the end of everything. It was that important. Mao blinked. How much more of an end could everything have? There were no more people so how could there be rules? Rules couldn't float around by themselves. He stood up and saw the golden glitter. A white oblong had been wedged in a piece of broken wood, and there were toeless footprints in the sand. Next to the wood was another mango. She'd been creeping around while he slept. There were meaningless marks on the white oblong, but on the other side were some pictures. Mao knew about messages, and this one wasn't difficult. When the sun is just above the last tree left on Little Nation, you must throw a spear at the big wrecked canoe, he said aloud. It didn't make any sense, and nor did the ghost girl. But she had given him the spark maker, although she'd been very frightened. He'd been frightened too. What were you supposed to do about girls? You had to keep away from them while you were a boy, but he'd heard that when you were a man you got other instructions. And as for the grandfathers and the god-anchors, he hadn't seen them at all. They were big stones, but the wave hadn't cared. Did the gods know? Had they been washed away? It was too complicated to think about. Beer was simpler, but not by much. Women made the beer, and he knew that there was a big bowl in front of the cave of the grandfathers where an offering of beer was poured every day. He knew this, and it had just stayed in his head as a thing that he knew, but now questions were rising, like, why did the dead need beer? Wouldn't it? trickled through? If they didn't drink it, who did? And would he get into trouble for even thinking these questions? Who from? He remembered going into the women's place from when he was very small. Around about the time he was seven or eight, he started to become unwelcome there. Women shooed him away, or stopped what they were doing when he came near, and watched him very hard until he left. The very old women, in particular, had a way of glaring at you that made you want to be somewhere else. One of the older boys told him that they could mutter words that made your wingo fall off. After that he kept away from the women's place, and it became like the moon. He knew where it was, 
but didn't even think about going there. Well, there were no old women now. He wished there were. There was no one to stop him doing anything. He wished there was. The path to the women's place turned off from the track into the forest and then went downhill and southwest and down into a narrow gully. At the end of it were two big stones, taller than a man, splashed with red paint. That was the only way in, back when there were rules. Now Mao pulled out the thorn bush that blocked the entrance and pushed through. And there was the place, a round bowl of a valley full of sunlight. Screens of trees kept out the wind, and thorn and briar bushes were woven so thickly among them that nothing except maybe a snake could get through. And today the valley looked as though it was asleep. Mao could hear the sea, but it seemed to be a long way off. There was the tinkle of a little stream that dribbled out of the rock at one side of the bowl, filled a rocky hollow that was a natural bathing place, and lost itself in the gardens. The nation grew the big crops in the large field. That was where you found aharo, sugarcane, tabor, boomerang peas, and black corn. There men grew the things that made you live. In the place, the gardens of the women grew the things that made the living enjoyable, possible, and longer. Spices, and fruits, and chewing roots. They had ways of making crops grow bigger or more tasty. They dug up or traded plants and brought them here and knew the secrets of seeds and pods and things. They raised pink bananas here, and rare plantains and yams, including the jumping yam. They also grew medicines here, and babies. Here and there around the edges of the gardens were huts. Mao approached them carefully, beginning to feel nervous. Someone should be shouting at him, some old woman should be pointing and mumbling, and he should be running away very fast with his hands cupped over his groin just in case. Anything would be better than this sunny, empty silence. So there are still rules, he thought. I brought them with me. They're in my head. There were baskets in some of the huts, and bunches of roots hung from the ceiling, out of reach of small fingers. They were maniac roots. You learned about them very early on. They made the best beer of all, or they killed you as dead as a stone, and the secret ingredient that decided which of these happened was a song that everybody knew. He found what he was looking for in the hut by the spring. A whole bowl of chopped root was hissing and bubbling gently to itself under a pile of palm leaves. The sharp, prickly smell filled the hut. How much did some dead men drink? He filled a calabash with the stuff, which should be enough. He was careful how he poured it, because it was very dangerous at this stage, and he hurried away before a ghost could catch him. He reached the Valley of the Grandfathers without spilling much, and tipped the contents of the calabash into the big stone bowl in front of the sealed cave. From the gnarly old trees a couple of grandfather birds watched him carefully. He spat into the bowl, and the beer seethed for a while. Big yellow bubbles burst on the surface. Then he sang. It was a simple little song, easy to remember, about the four brothers, all sons of air, who one day decided to race around the huge belly of their father to see which of them would court the woman who lived in the moon, and the tricks each one played on the others so that he could be first. Babies learned it, everyone knew it, and for some reason singing that song turned the poison into beer. It really did. The beer foamed in the bowl. Mao watched the big round stone just in case, but the grandfathers probably had a way of drinking beer from the spirit world. 
He sang his way through the song, taking care not to miss any verse, especially the one that was very funny when you did the right gestures. When he had finished, the beer had gone clear, with golden bubbles rising to the top. Mao took a sip to check. His heart didn't stop after one beat, so the beer was probably fine. He took a few steps back and said to the wide-open sky, "'Here is your beer, grandfathers!' Nothing happened. It was a bad thought, but a thank you might have been nice. Then the world drew a breath, and the breath became voices. "'You have failed to do the chant!' "'I have sung the song. It is good beer!' "'We mean the chant that calls us to the beer!' A couple more grandfather birds crash-landed in the trees. "'I didn't know there was one!' "'You are a lazy boy!' Mao grabbed at this. "'That's right. I'm just a boy. There is no one to teach me. Can you—' "'Have you righted the god-anchors?' "'No!' And with that the voices snapped into silence, leaving only the sighing of the wind. Well, it looked like good beer. What was a chant needed for? Mao's mother had made good beer, and people had just turned up. With a flapping of wings, a grandfather bird landed on the edge of the beer stone and gave him the usual stare that said, "'If you're going to die, hurry up. Otherwise, leave.' Mao shrugged and walked away. But he hid behind a tree, and he was good at hiding. Maybe the big round stone would roll. It didn't take long for several more grandfather birds to alight on the bowl. They squabbled for a while, and then, with the occasional pause for another brief fight, settled down to some serious boozing. "'rocking backward and forward, because that is how birds move when they drink, "'then rocking backward and forward and forward and falling over a lot, "'which is how birds move when they've been drinking fresh beer. "'One took off and flew backward into some bushes. "'Mao walked back thoughtfully to the beach, "'stopping on the way to cut himself a spear from the forest. "'Down on the beach he sharpened it to a point, "'which he hardened in the fire, occasionally glancing up at the sun. "'He did all this slowly.' because his mind was filling up with questions. They came out of the black hole inside him so fast they made it hard to think in a straight line. And soon you'd have to see the ghost girl. That was going to be... difficult. He looked at the white oblong again. The shiny metal around the edge was quite soft and useless, and scraped off easily. As for the picture, he thought it might be some kind of magic or charm, like the blue bead. What was the point of throwing a spear at the big canoe? It wasn't something you could kill. But the ghost girl was the only other person on the island, and she had, after all, given him the spark maker. He didn't need it now, but it was still a wonderful thing. When the sun was getting close to the little nation, he set off along the beach and entered the low forest. You could smell things growing. There was never much light down here, but the big canoe had left a wide trail, and daylight was shafting down into spaces that hadn't seen it for years, and the race was on for a rare place in the sun. New green shoots were fighting for their piece of the sky. Fronds were unfolding. Seeds were cracking open. The forest was coming back with its own green tide. In six months, no one would ever guess what had happened here. Mao slowed down when the wreck of the big canoe came in sight, but he could see no movement. He would have to be careful about this. It would be so easy to get things wrong. It was so easy to get things wrong. She hated the name Ermintrude. It was the Trude, really. Ermine, now, that wasn't bad at all. Trudy, too, sounded quite jolly. But her grandmother had said it sounded fast, whatever that meant, and banned her from using it. Even Gertrude would have done. You still had your Trude, of course, but one of the royal princesses was named Gertrude, and some of the newspapers called her Princess Gertie, 
and that sounded like the name of a girl who might have some fun in life. But Ermintrude, she thought, was exactly the kind of name that would invite a young man to tea and mess it all up. The coal stove kept smoking. The flour she tried to make the scones of had smelled funny because of the dead lobster in the barrel, and she felt sure some of the flour shouldn't have been moving about either. She'd managed to open the last tin of Dr. Poundbury's patented everlasting milk, which said on the tin that it would taste as good after a year as it did on the day it was tinned, and sadly that was probably true. It smelled like drowned mice. If only she'd been taught properly. If only someone had thought to spend an afternoon teaching her a few things that would be handy to know if she was shipwrecked on a desert island. It could happen to anyone. Even some hints on making scones would have been a help. But no, her grandmother had said that a lady should never lift anything heavier than a parasol and should certainly never set foot in a kitchen unless it was to make economic, charitable soup for the deserving poor. And her grandmother didn't think there were very many of them. Always remember, she used to say, far too often, that it only needs one hundred and thirty-eight people to die, and your father will be king, and that means that one day you might be queen. Grandmother used to say this with a look in her eye that suggested that she was planning one hundred and thirty-eight murders, and you didn't have to know the old lady for long to suspect that she'd be quite capable of arranging them. They wouldn't be impolite murders, of course. There wouldn't be any of that desperate business with daggers and pistols. They would be elegant and tactful. A block or stone would fall out of someone's stately home here. Someone would slip on a patch of ice in the castle battlements there. A suspicious blancmange at a palace banquet, arsenic could so easily be confused with sugar, would take care of several at once. But she probably wouldn't go that far. Not really. Nevertheless, she lived in hope, and prepared her granddaughter for a royal life by seeing to it, wherever possible, that Ermintrude was not taught anything that could possibly be of any practical use whatsoever. Now here she was, with her wrong name, struggling to make afternoon tea in a wrecked boat in the middle of the jungle. Why hadn't anyone thought this might happen? And the young man was what her grandmother would have called a savage, too. But he hadn't been savage. She had watched him bury all those people in the sea. He had picked them up gently, even the dogs. He wasn't someone throwing away garbage. He had cared. He had cried tears, but he hadn't seen her, not even when she'd stood in front of him. There had just been one point when his streaming eyes had tried to focus on her, and then he had stepped around her and gotten on with his work. He'd been so careful and gentle it was hard to believe he was a savage. She remembered first mate Cox shooting at monkeys with his pistol when he had moored in that river mouth in the Sea of Keramis. He had laughed every time a small brown body dropped into the river, especially if it was still alive when the crocodiles caught it. She'd shouted at him to stop it, and he'd laughed. And Captain Roberts had come down from the wheelhouse, and there had been a terrible row, and after that things had gone very sour on the sweet Judy. But just as she had begun the first part of her journey around the world, there had been a lot in the newspapers about Mr. Darwin and his new theory that people had a kind of monkey as their distant ancestor. Ermintrude did not know if this was true, but when she'd looked into first mate Cox's eyes, she'd seen something much worse than any monkey could be. At which point a spear crashed through the cracked porthole, hissed across the cabin, and left via the porthole on the other side, which had lost all its glass to the wave. Ermintrude sat very still first out of shock, and then because she was remembering her father's advice. In one of his letters to her, 
He had said that when she joined him in Government House, she would be his First Lady, and would be able to meet all kinds of people who might act in ways she found strange at first, and perhaps would even misunderstand, and so she would have to be gracious and make allowances. Very well. This was about the time the boy would be here. What did she expect him to do when he arrived? Even on a boat that isn't wrecked, it's hard to find a doorbell. Perhaps throwing a spear means, Look, I throw away my spear. I'm not armed. Yes, that sounds right. It's just like shaking hands, after all, to show you are not holding a sword. Well, I'm glad that's one little mystery solved, she thought. For the first time, since the spear had hissed across the cabin, she breathed out. Outside, Mao was beginning to wonder if something had gone wrong, when there were some wooden noises and the ghost girl's head appeared over the side of the big canoe. So kind of you to be punctual, she said, trying to smile, and thank you very much for breaking the window. It was getting very stuffy in here. He didn't understand any of this, but she was very nearly smiling, and that was a good thing. She wanted him to come into the wreck, too. He did so, very cautiously. The sweet Judy had keeled over a bit when the wave had dropped her at ground level, so everything sloped. Inside was just a mess, made of many different messes all jumbled up. Everything stank of mud and stale water. But the girl led him into another space that looked at least as though someone had tried to clean things up a bit, even if they'd failed. "'I'm afraid the chairs all got smashed,' said the girl, "'but I'm sure you will find poor Captain Roberts's sea-chest an adequate substitute.' Mao, who had never sat on anything but the ground or a hut floor when he ate, edged his bottom onto a wooden box. "'I thought it would be nice to get properly acquainted since we haven't been introduced,' said the ghost girl. "'Obviously the fact that we cannot understand each other will be something of a drawback.' While this gibberish was going on, Mao stared at the fire in its little cave. Steam was coming out of a round black pipe. Next to it was a flat round thing. Pale things on it looked like some kind of bread. This is a woman's place, he thought, and I don't know the rules. I must be careful. She might do anything to me. And the butter had gone runny, but I threw away the flour that had gone really green. Do you like some tea? I expect you don't take milk. He watched as a brown liquid was poured into a blue and white bowl. Mao watched it carefully, while the girl went on talking faster and faster. How do you know what's right and wrong, he wondered. What are the rules when you are all alone with a ghost girl? He'd not been alone on the boy's island. There hadn't been anyone else there, but he'd felt the nation around him. He was doing the right thing. But now, what were the right things? The grandfathers bellowed and complained and ordered him about, and didn't listen. He couldn't find the silver thread either, or the picture of the future. There was no picture now. There was just him and this girl, and no rules to fight the darkness ahead. Now she had taken the bready things off the fire and put them on another of the round metal things, which he tried to balance on his knees. Most of the crockery got smashed in the wreck, said the girl sadly. It's a miracle I could find two cups. Will you have a scone? She pointed at the bread things. Mao took one. It was hot, which was good, but on the other hand it tasted like a piece of slightly rotten wood. She was watching anxiously as he moved the lump around in his mouth, looking for something to do with it. I've done it wrong, haven't I? she said. I thought the flour was too damp. Poor Captain Roberts used to keep a lobster in the flour barrel to eat the weevils, and I'm sure that can't be right. I'm sorry, I won't mind if you spit it out. And she started to cry. Mao hadn't understood a word, but some things don't need language. She weeps because the bread is awful. She should not cry. He swallowed and took another bite. She stared and sniffed. 
not certain if it was too early to stop crying. Very nice food, said Mao. He swallowed the thing with a fight and was sure he felt it hit the bottom of his stomach. And then he ate the other one. The girl dabbed at her eyes with a cloth. Very good, Mao insisted, trying not to taste rotted lobster. I'm sorry, I can't understand you, she said. Oh, dear, and I completely forgot to lay out the napkin rings. What must you think of me? I don't know the words you say, said Mao. There was a long, helpless pause, and Mao felt the two lumps of bad, dreadful bread sitting in his stomach, planning their exit. He was drinking the cup of sour, hot liquid to drown them when he became aware of a faint murmur coming from a corner of the cabin, where a big blanket covered... What? It sounded as though someone under there was muttering angrily to itself. It's good to have someone to talk to, said the girl loudly. I see you walking around, and it's not so lonely. The flower balls in Mao's stomach didn't like the brown drink. He kept very still, fighting to keep them down. The girl looked at him nervously and said, My name is, um, Daphne. She gave a little cough and added, Yes, Daphne. She pointed to herself and held out her hand. Daphne, she said again, even more loudly. Well, she'd always liked the name. Mao looked obediently at her hand, but there was nothing to see. So she was from Daphne. In the islands the most important thing about you was the name of your clan. He hadn't heard of the place, but they always said that no one knew all the islands. Some of the poorer ones disappeared completely at high tide, and the huts were built to float. They would have gone now. So how many were left? Had everyone in the world been washed away? The ghost girl stood and walked up the sloping deck to the door. Mao thought this looked promising. With any luck, he didn't have to eat any more wood. She said, Could you please help me with poor Captain Roberts? She wanted him to go outside, that was clear, and Mao got up quickly. The bad bread wanted to escape, and the smell of the fire was giving him a headache. He staggered up and out into the fresh afternoon air. The girl was standing on the ground by the big grey roll Mao had seen yesterday. She looked at him desperately. Poor Captain Roberts, she said, and prodded it with her foot. Mao pulled away the heavy cloth and saw the body of an old trouser man with a beard. He was lying on his back, his eyes staring up at nothing. Mao pulled the cloth down farther and found that the man's hands were holding a big circle of wood, with things like wooden spikes all around the edge of it. He tied himself to the ship's wheels so he wouldn't get washed away, said the girl behind him. I cut the ropes, but his poor hands wouldn't let go, so I found a hammer and knocked the pin out of the wheel, and I tried and tried to bury him, but the ground is too hard, and I can't move him by myself. I'm sure he wouldn't mind being buried at sea, she finished all in one breath. Mao sighed. She must know I can't understand her, but she goes on talking, he thought. She wants this body buried, I can tell. I wonder how long it took her to scrape that pathetic little hole in the rock. But she's lost and far from home, like me. I can send him into the dark water, he said. He made wave noises and wave shapes with his hand. She looked terrified for a moment, and then laughed and clapped her hands. Yes, yes, that's right, the sea! Whoosh, whoosh, the sea! The man and the wooden wheel together were too heavy to lift, but the cloth was very thick, and Mao found he could drag the body quite well over the crushed vegetation of the track. The girl helped him with the difficult bits, or at least tried to, and once they reached the shore, the grey roll slid well enough onto the damp sand but it was a long, tiring drag to the western end of the beach. At last Mao managed to get the captain into the waist-deep water at the very edge of the reef. He looked into the dead eyes, staring straight ahead, and wondered what they would see down in the dark current. Would they see anything? Did anyone see anything?
The shock of the question hit him like a blow. How could he think it? Once we were dolphins, and Emo made us into men. That was true, wasn't it? Why did he even wonder if it wasn't? And if that wasn't true, then there was just the dark water, and nothing was anything. He stopped those thoughts before they could run away with him. The Daphne girl was watching him, and this was no time to be uncertain and hesitant. He twisted paper vine together to fasten stones and pieces of broken coral to poor Captain Roberts and his wheel. Paper vine got tighter when it was wet, and it didn't rot for years. Wherever poor Captain Roberts was going, he was going to stay there. Unless he turned into a dolphin, of course. Then, quickly, Mao made the cut to release his spirit. On the rocks behind him, the girl sang a song. It wasn't all na-na-na this time. Somehow Mao could hear her voice better, now he'd heard her speak. There were words, probably, although they had no meaning to Mao. But he thought, it's a trouser-man chant for the dead. They are like us. But if Emo made them, why are they so different? The captain was almost underwater now, still holding on to the wheel. Mao held the last stone in one hand and pushed the floating captain forward, feeling all the time with his toes for the edge of the rock. He could sense the cold of the deeps below him, too. The current was down there. No one knew where it came from, although there were stories of a land to the south where the water fell like feathers. But everyone knew where it went. They could see it. It became the shining path, a river of stars that flowed across the night sky. Once in a thousand years, it was said, when Lokaha looked among the dead for those who should go to the perfect world, they would climb that path and send the rest back to be dolphins until it was time for them to be born again. How does that happen, Mao thought? How does water become stars? How does a dead man become a living dolphin? But those were a child's questions, weren't they? The kind you shouldn't ask? The kind that were silly or wrong, and if you asked why too much you were given chores to do and told that's how the world is? A wavelet broke over the captain. Mao fastened the last stone to the wheel, and as the captain slid gently under the water, gave him a push out into the current. A few bubbles came up as the captain sank, very slowly, out of sight. Mao was just turning away when he saw something rising through the water. It broke the surface and turned over slowly. It was the captain's hat, and now that it had filled with water, it began to drift back down again. There was a splash from behind him, and the girl of the Daphne clan floundered past, her white dress floating around her like a huge jellyfish. "'Don't let it sink again!' she shouted. "'He wants you to have it!' She plunged forward, grabbed the hat, waved it triumphantly, and sank. Mao waited for her to come back up, but there were just bubbles. Could it possibly be that there was someone in the world who couldn't? His body worked without thinking. He ducked under the surface, grabbed the biggest lump of coral he could see, and dived over the edge and into the dark water. There below him was poor Captain Roberts, drifting gently down toward posterity. Mao went past in a rip of silver. There were more bubbles below, and a pale shape disappearing at the farthest reach of the sunlight. Not this one, Mao thought, as loudly as he could. Not now. No one goes alive into the dark. I served you, Lokaha. I walked in your steps. You should owe me this one. One life back from the dark. And a voice returned from the gloom. I recall no arrangement, Mao, no bargain, covenant, or promise. There is what happens, and what does not happen. There is no should. 
and then he was tangling in the sea anemone of her skirts. He let the stone continue into the dark, found her face, breathed the air from his bursting lungs into hers, saw her eyes open wide and kicked for the surface, dragging her behind him. It took forever. He could feel the long, cold fingers of Lokaha grabbing at his feet and squeezing his lungs, and surely the light was fading. The sound of the water in his ears began to sound like whispering. Would it hurt to stop now, to slide back down into the dark and let the current take him? It would be the end of all grief, a blanking of all bad memories. All he had to do was let her go and... No! That thought brought back his anger, and the anger brought strength. A shadow fell across the light, and Mao had to swim out of the way as the gently sinking captain went on past on the last voyage he'd ever make. But the light was no nearer, never any nearer. His legs were like stones, everything stung, and there it was, the silver line, coming back to him again, pulling him forward into a picture of what could be, and rock was under his feet. He kicked down, and his head broke through the surf. His feet touched the rock again, and the light was brilliant. The rest of what happened he watched from inside himself as he dragged the girl onto the rocks and tipped her upside down and slapped her on her back until she coughed up water. Then it was a run along the beach to lay her down by the fire, where she vomited up more water and groaned. Only then did Mao's mind explain that his body was far too weak to have managed all this, and let it fall backward into the sand. He managed to turn over in time to throw up what was left of the dreadful cakes, and stared down at the mess. Does not happen, he thought, and the words became a declaration of triumph and defiance. Does not happen, he said, and the words got bigger and dragged him to his feet, and does not happen, he shouted at the sky. Does not happen. A little sound made him look down. The girl was shaking there on the sand. He knelt beside her and held her hand, which was still clutching the captain's hat. Her skin was white, and as cold as the touch of Lokaha, even in the heat of the fire. Cheat! I got her back, he shouted. Does not happen! Mao ran farther along the beach and onto the track that led into the low forest. Red crabs scuttled out of the way as he bounded along the trail of broken trees. He reached the big canoe and scrambled up the side. There had been... Yes, there was that big blanket in the corner. He grabbed it and pulled, and something pulled back. He pulled harder, and something landed on the deck with a splintering noise. A voice said, Wah! Roberts is a dreadful boozer. Show us your drawers. This time the blanket had come away, revealing a broken wooden cage on the floor and a very angry grey bird. It glared at Mao. Wah! Blessed are the meek, my sainted aunt. Mao had no time for birds now, but this one had a worrying glint in its eye. It seemed to demand a reply. Does not happen, he shouted, and ran out of the cabin, the blanket flapping behind him. He was halfway down the track when there was a flutter of wings overhead and a shriek of, Does not happen! Mao didn't even look up. The world had become too strange. He ran to the fire and wrapped the girl as tight as he could in the blanket. After a while the shivering stopped and she seemed to be asleep. Does not happen, screamed the bird from a broken tree. Mao blinked. He'd understood it, and he'd understood it before and not realised it. Oh, there were some birds that could speak a few words, like the grey raven and the yellow parakeet, but you could hardly understand them. This bird talked as if it knew what it was saying. Where's my grub, you vinegar-faced old pisspot? said the bird, bouncing up and down eagerly. Give me rations, you old hypocrite. That sounded like trouser-man talk, right enough. 
The sun was low, but still a hand's span above the sea. A lot had happened in a short space of time that on the inside had lasted nearly forever. Mao looked down at the sleeping girl. Does not happen was not enough. You couldn't trust Lo Kaha. There were no bargains. Now he had to think about will not happen. Death was not going to rule here. He found his spear and stood guard until morning. Chapter 4 Bargains, Covenants and Promises Ermintrude had heard that when you drown, your whole life passes in front of your eyes. In fact, it's when you don't drown that this happens, as life races back from the start to get to the last known living moment. Mostly, it's a blur, but every life has its important moments that get more and more colourful the longer they are remembered. In hers, one of them was about the map. Every life should have a map. The map. Oh yes, the map. She'd found it in the big atlas in the library one wet winter afternoon. In a week, she could have drawn it from memory. And the name of it was the Great Southern Pelagic Ocean. It was half a world of blue sea, but it was stitched together with seams of little marks, tiny dots that her father had called island chains. There were hundreds and thousands of islands, and a lot of them were just about big enough for a coconut tree, he said. There had to be one coconut tree on every tiny island, by law, so that if someone was shipwrecked, then at least he'd have some shade to sit in. The lonesome palm, Cocos nutificera solitaria, is common over most of the pelagic, and is unusual in that an adult tree secretes a poison in its root, which is deadly only to other palms. Because of this, it is not unusual to find only one such palm on the smaller islands, and a thousand cartoons are, therefore, botanically correct. He drew a picture of her sitting in the shade of a coconut tree, with her white dress and her parasol, but he quickly added, on the pencilled horizon, a ship coming to rescue her. Much later on, she was able to read the names of the groups of islands, the Bank Holiday Monday Islands, All Souls Island, the Rogation Sunday Islands, the Mothering Sunday Islands, the Hogmanay Islands, it seemed that the great southern pelagic ocean had been navigated not with a compass and a sextant, but with a calendar. Her father had said that if you knew where to look, you could find Mrs. Ethel J. Bundy's birthday island, and loaned her a large magnifying glass. She spent long Sunday afternoons lying on her stomach, minutely examining every necklace of dots, and concluded that Mrs. Ethel J. Bundy's birthday island was a father joke, i.e., not very funny, but sort of lovable in its silliness. But now, thanks to him, she knew the island chains of the great southern pelagic ocean by heart. She had wanted, there and then, to live on an island that was lost at sea, and so small that you weren't sure if it was an island, or just that a fly had done its business on the page. But that wasn't all. There was a map of the stars at the back of the atlas. For her next birthday, she'd asked for a telescope. Her mother had been alive then, and had suggested a pony, but her father had laughed and bought her a beautiful telescope, saying, Of course you should watch the stars. Any girl who cannot identify the constellation of Orion just isn't paying attention. And when she started asking him complicated questions, he took her along to lectures at the Royal Society, where it turned out that a nine-year-old girl who had blonde hair and knew what the procession of the equinoxes was could ask hugely bearded famous scientists anything she liked. Who'd want a pony when you could have the whole universe? It was far more interesting, and you didn't have to muck it out once a week. Well, that was a good day. 
said her father, when they were coming back from one meeting. Yes, papa. I think Dr. Agassiz is certainly providing evidence for the Ice Age theory, and I shall need a bigger telescope if I am to see Jupiter's great red spot. Well, we shall have to see about that, said her father, with hopeless parental diplomacy. But please don't let your grandmother know you shook hands with Mr. Darwin. She thinks he is the devil. Gosh, is he? The prospect had seemed quite interesting. As a matter of fact, said her father, I believe he is the greatest scientist who has ever lived. Greatest than Newton? I don't think so, papa. Many of his ideas were first voiced by other people, including his own granddad. Aha! You've been in my library again. Well, Newton said that he stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes, but, well, he was just being modest. And they had argued all the way home. It was a game. He loved it when she assembled her facts and pinned him down with a cast-iron argument. He believed in rational thinking and scientific inquiry, which was why he never won an argument with his mother, who believed in people doing what she told them, and believed it with a rock-hard certainty that dismissed all opposition. In fact, there was always something a little naughty about going to the lectures. Her grandmother objected to them on the grounds that they would make the girl restless and give her ideas. She was right. Ermintrude was already pretty good at ideas, but a few more are always welcome. At this point, the racing line of life speeds up to get past some dark years she never remembered, except in nightmares and whenever she heard a baby crying, and leaps ahead to the day when she first knew she would see islands under new stars. Her mother was dead by then, which meant that things at the hall were now run entirely by her grandmother, and her father, a quiet, hard-working man, didn't have much spirit left to battle with her. The wonderful telescope was locked away, because a well-brought-up young lady has no business looking at the moons of Jupiter, whose home life was so different from that of her own dear king. It didn't matter that her father very patiently explained that there were at least thirty-six million miles of difference between Jupiter, the Roman god, and Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system. She didn't listen. She never listened. And you put up with that, or you hit her over the head with a battle-axe. And her father didn't do that sort of thing even though one of his ancestors had once done something really horrible to the Duke of Norfolk with a red-hot poker. Their Royal Society visits were banned on the grounds that the scientists were nothing but people who asked silly questions, and that was that. Her father came and apologised to her about it, which was horrible. But there were other ways to explore the universe. One of the things about being a quiet girl in a very big house is that you can, if you try, be invisible in plain view, and it is amazing what you can overhear when you are being a good little girl helping cook in the kitchen by cutting out pastry shapes. There were always delivery boys or men from the estate wanting a cup of tea, or cook's old friends just dropping in for a chat. The secret was to wear ribbons in your hair and skip everywhere. It completely fooled people. Except her grandmother, unfortunately, who put a stop to the visits below stairs as soon as she took over the running of the household. "'Children should be seen but not be seen listening,' she said. "'Off you go, quickly now.' And that was that. Ermin Daphne spent most of her time doing embroidery in her room. Sewing, provided you weren't doing it to make something useful, was one of the few things a girl, who was going to be a lady one day, was allowed to do, at least according to her grandmother. However, it wasn't all she did. To begin with, she found the old dumb waiter, a sort of elevator just for food, that hadn't been used since the days when her great-great-aunt had lived in Daphne's bedroom, on the top floor, and all her food had to be hauled up five floors from the kitchen. 
Daphne didn't know much about the old woman, but apparently a young man had smiled at her on her twenty-first birthday, and she'd gone straight to bed with an attack of the vapours, and stayed there, still gently vaporising, until she completely vaporised at the age of eighty-six, apparently because her body was fed up with having nothing to do. The dumb waiter had never been officially used since then. Daphne, though, had found that with the removal of a few planks and the greasing of some wheels, she could haul it up and down by its pulleys and eavesdrop on several rooms. It became a sort of sound telescope to explore the indoor solar system that revolved around her grandmother. She gave it a bit of a scrub, and then another, because, yuck, if the maids weren't going to carry a food tray up five floors, then they weren't going to, yuck, carry down anything else like the gazunda. It was an interesting education, listening to the big house when it was unaware, but getting it was like tipping out a jigsaw puzzle on the floor and trying to guess at the picture from looking at five pieces. And it was while listening to two of the maids talking about Albert the stable boy and how naughty he was, a state of affairs they didn't entirely disapprove of, apparently, and that she was starting to suspect very strongly had nothing to do with how he looked after the horses, that she heard the argument in the dining room. Her grandmother's voice cut through the ear like a diamond on glass, but her father was using the calm, flat voice he always used when he was very angry and didn't dare show it. By the time she'd pulled up the dumb waiter to get a better listen, the argument had been going on for some time. "'And you'll end up in a cannibal's cooking-pot!' That was the unmistakable sound of her grandmother. "'Cannibals usually roast their food, mother, not boil it.' and that was certainly the quiet voice of her father, who, when he was talking to his mother, always sounded as though he was determined not to look up from his newspaper. "'And is that any better, pray?' "'I doubt it, mother, but at least it's more accurate. In any case, the Rogation Sunday Islanders have never been known to cook anyone al fresco in any kind of utensil, as far as we know. I don't see why you have to go to the other end of the world.' And that was her grandmother changing her line of attack. "'Somebody must!' We have to keep the flag flying. Why, pray? Oh, dear mother, I'm surprised at you. It's our flag. It has to fly. Do remember that only 138 people have to die, and you will be king. So you keep telling me, mother, although father always said that claim is rather weak when you consider what happened in 1421. In any case, while I'm waiting for that very unlikely death toll, I might as well do my bit in the service of the empire. "'Is there any society there?' Grandmother could say a capital letter so distinctly that you heard it. Society meant people who were rich or influential, or preferably both, although they shouldn't be richer and more influential than her. "'Well, there's the bishop, a jolly decent chap, apparently, goes around a place in a canoe and speaks the lingo like a native, doesn't wear shoes. Then there's MacRather, he runs the dockyard, teaching the native lads to play cricket.' As a matter of fact, I'm to take some more bats with me, and of course there will often be a ship in, so as governor I'll have to entertain the officers. Sunstruck madmen, naked savages, they wear pads, actually. What? What? What are you talking about? Another thing about grandmother was her belief that a conversation consisted of someone else listening to her talking, so even mild interruptions seemed to her to be some strange, puzzling inversion of the natural order of things, like pigs flying. It baffled her. Pads, said Daphne's father helpfully, and protective thingamies. McGrather says they've confused hitting the wicket with hitting the batsman. Very well, then. Sunstruck madmen, semi-naked savages, and the Royal Navy. 
And you really think I will allow my granddaughter to face these perils? The Royal Navy isn't very perilous. Supposing she marries a sailor, like Auntie Penelope did. Daphne could imagine her father's faint smile, which always made his mother angry, but then so did practically everything else. He was a rear admiral. Her grandmother snapped. That's not the same thing at all. Mother, there is no need for this fuss. I have told the king that I will go. Ermintrude will follow in a month or two. It will do us good to be away for a while. This house is too cold and too big. Nevertheless, I forbid. It is also too lonely. It has too many memories. It has too much silenced laughter. Too many unheard footsteps. Too many soundless echoes since they died. The words came out like slabs of thunder. I have made my decision, and it will not be unmade even by you. I have told the palace to send her out to me as soon as I am settled in. Do you understand? I believe my daughter would, and perhaps at the other end of the world there is a place where the screaming can't be heard, and I may find it in my heart to grant God absolution. She heard him walk to the door while tears met on her chin and soaked her nightgown. And grandmother said, "And the child's schooling, may I ask? How did she manage it? How did she come out with something like that?" When the silverware and the chandeliers were still jingling with tinny echoes, didn't she remember the coffins? Perhaps she did. Perhaps she thought that her son needed to be anchored to the earth. It worked then, because he stopped with his hand on the door handle and said, in a voice that almost didn't shake, "She will have a tutor in Port Mercia. It will do her good and broaden her horizons. You see, I have thought about this." It won't bring them back, you know. That was her grandmother. Daphne put her hand over her mouth in sheer shock. How could the woman be so stupid? She could imagine her father's face. She heard him walk to the dining room door. She waited for the slam, but that wouldn't be her father. The sharp little click of the door shutting was louder in her head than any slam could be.